morning. The scripture for today is Psalm 13, which can be found on page 537 of your pew Bibles. That's page 537, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Praise be to the Lord. In a little less than a year, this past year, um, three good friends of mine have passed away um, unexpectedly and way too early. Um, Starting with my um, neighborhood friend, Ross, uh, my neighbor, next door neighbor of 26 years, right next to our family home, 33 Knowles, 31 Knowles, died of cancer um, in the winter. We celebrated his life in a funeral home. Another friend, my good camp friend, passed away in the spring. We celebrated his life in a church. It was a beautiful, beautiful, powerful service. And most recently, my my high school friend, uh, Peter, passed away unexpectedly in the United States where he had lived for many, many years, um, having uh, obtained a PhD and having a career at the University of Michigan in advanced mathematics. Peter was really a genius. Uh, He was uh, the kind of guy who, um, well, for one, won the the Canada-wide science fair four years in a row um, in the applied physics um, category. He was the kind of guy who was building proton accelerators in his garage while we were working on our basketball games. And he, uh, he was living in a kind of a different atmosphere intellectually than all of his good friends, including me, but it was kind of fun to know him and to be around him. He's the kind of guy who, just being with him made you feel that you were a little bit smarter than you really were. Peter died suddenly, um, a shock to his colleagues at the University of Michigan, a shock to his students, particularly his graduate students, and a shock to his colleagues around the world. He'd become a internationally renowned scholar in his field. But where we saw the shock 
was in his family. And we gathered in our hometown to celebrate his life in a, a peculiar way that our hometown often does this, and that is that we met at a bar. And we had a wake for my friend. And there was a, an open mic. There was a, a deep sadness and a deep expression of loss and a deep search for meaning in the midst of this loss of an older son and um, a big brother to three other siblings. There was no singing, there was no praying, there was no liturgy other than drinks and some food and a lot of conversation and this microphone where people expressed what they were experiencing. There was a lot of honesty, there was a lot of transparency, and there was an expression of sort of utterly gut-wrenching grief. What was, what was missing, though, was nowhere to really direct the pain of this family, including these younger siblings, all of whom were also high school friends of mine. That deep frustration and anger, that shock, that loss of, of a wise, smart, caring, older brother and a son in whom his parents were profoundly proud was surrounded by a community of, of deep empathy and support and shared sadness. But it was almost like the emotion of the time didn't go anywhere except for just sort of emote itself into this absence. There's no direction. There wasn't really any, any conclusion. And um, it, was, it was a difficult context in which to make sense of on a few different levels. My friend's family had no place to take their trouble and their tears. Didn't really have a place to go. We were in a pub, we were in the bar, we were with our community, we were with our high school friends. It was a great time to catch up, but the sadness and the shock were so thick in the room and it felt like there was just no channel, no pathway, no vehicle. The Psalms, as we have been learning, are prayers. And they are insights into the nature of prayer. They, the Psalms, Phil has been reminding us over the last couple of weeks and bringing us into this series on the Psalms and prayer, that they are expressive. They have a unique vocabulary. There's a, a kind of a cadence to the Psalms that helps us to see that they together become a kind of an anatomy of the soul. They become a vocabulary of the human heart. If they're read correctly, we see about the Psalms that there, there is a profound theology of who God is being expressed in the Psalms. And there's also a deep psychology. This kind of uncovering understanding of who human beings are. And that these two things, profound theology and deep psychology, are mixed together in the conversation which we call prayer. 
Today's psalm is Psalm 13. And this psalm takes us directly into the tension of prayer, even as it models prayer for us and encourages us a way and a place to direct our prayers. It helps us to see prayer in a certain very nuanced And I would say, in light of my friend's story and in light of all of our lives, a kind of an indispensable way to think about prayer. We learned some some details about this psalm by, by looking at it. First of all, there are some, there's a key, key question. It's repeated four times. This is a kind of an intensity of repetition, the kind of, kind of repetition that you know just by asking the question once, you won't probably begin to even come close to getting the answer that you're looking for. This kind of crying out intensity is expressed in this psalm. And, and in the psalm, the intensity of expression is directed to God, directed right to God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long, how long? And so there's a time frame that takes place. This this question isn't, and these questions aren't for the weak of heart, and these questions aren't for looking and getting a 30-second cliched response. There's deep personal pain that is associated with this psalm and with this this crisis, with David. There's a crisis of, of loneliness and anxiety, and two results seem to be that David is left with this sense that God has forgotten him. That in the midst of his trouble, in the midst of his frustration, in the midst of the dangerous threats on his life, that somehow God has forgotten him and has abandoned him. He just cannot seem to sense the presence of God in his trouble. This is really emphasized when David says, how long will you hide your face from me? This idea of faith in the Old Testament is a beautiful picture of the intimacy that we have with God. It's the the experience that we have with God. So that's why in Numbers chapter 6, in Aaron's blessing, um, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. What we're doing when we're giving that blessing to one another is we are literally speaking the presence of God right into a person's life. Palpable, so you can sense God, so that you can see God, so that you can hear God, so that you have this assurance that God is with you and for you. That God is, is with you in the same way that God was with Moses in that burning bush. David doesn't experience that. This trouble that he's experiencing likely around the threat of death over his life from his rebellious son Absalom is just knocking him off his understanding of the way things ought to be. And, and the resulting 
thing to that is that David has left. In verse, in verse 2, he says, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? This is the expression of turmoil. He, the only resource that David has is thinking over and over and over again about his trouble. I'm sure you've been there. I'm sure you've been there when the only, the only answer to your question is asking the question again, and all you're left with is your own best insight, which somehow comes frightfully short of what you think you need and what your heart knows that you need. Another way to say this is David said, you have left me alone with my own best ideas, and it's crushing me. They're not helping me. They're not directing me. They're not leading me. They're not guiding me. They're not supporting me. And worse than that, the opposition seems like it's winning. This is a a destabilization of life for David. For David, his worldview is being shaken and shattered. His enemy is winning. And this victory of the enemy seems to be a serious threat to God's power and God's involvement in his life. We talk about these psalms, and we talk about this emphasis in, by using the term lament. Generally speaking, lament or complaint. And there's a few characteristics. These, these laments of Scripture are directed to God. They involve the experience of personal suffering. They, they admit the helplessness in the wake of some kind of unexpected and unexplained force or threat. And they're all mixed together to become a potion of anxiety and anguish. And yet not completely without hope because they all manage to to point to something, to somewhere to direct our trouble and our tears. Biblical scholars who deal with the Psalms almost to a person suggest that this kind of spirit in the Psalms really has very, very little place in the spirituality of contemporary Christians. One author says that these kinds of Psalms are like strangers to contemporary Christians gathered in worship. Somehow we have been shaped in a way that that this kind of anxiety, this kind of honest anguish, this kind of very direct engagement with God doesn't really find its way into our spirituality or our worship too much. It's embarrassing, it seems. Maybe there's a few reasons for this. Maybe, Maybe because our worship which is the context of the Psalms and our prayers. Maybe our worship and our prayer is more about looking for answers than it is creating space for questions. I mean, here's a Psalm that is completely structured around a series of really deep questions. And you just wonder to yourself, if this is a model for our worship, where in our worship is the space to ask these questions? Where in our prayer is the space to ask these questions? Maybe these kind of spirituality doesn't have a place because we have to kind of come to, to think that 
that these kinds of questions really aren't appropriate for the sanctuary. Maybe they're, we've become convinced that they're better for the counselor, for the pastor's study, or for the best friend over coffee, and, and in many cases they are. Maybe it's because worship in our culture of the church in our era has become really dominated by celebration to the point where we have pushed out any kind of other emotional or experiential reality. Maybe this kind of asking repeatedly doesn't really have a place in our culture that is, seems to be fixed on really quick, easy questions and answers to those questions in a kind of a simple, cliche-like way. Maybe there's just a dissonance between what we expect in answers and where our questions take us. And so the interesting thing is, is that if you follow the argument of scholars who work on the Psalms, they're not just asking what I'm asking, where is my friend's family taking their trouble and their tears, scholars are asking, where are contemporary Christians taking their trouble and their tears? Seems like it's a crisis, not just in the bar and the pub, actually might even be a worse crisis in a sanctuary in the church. And you really can't read Jeremiah, the prophet, can you? Or his other prophet friends. You really can't read Ecclesiastes, can you? You really can't read Job, can you? You really can't honestly and deeply reflect on the life of Jesus, can you, without realizing that something of this kind of spirituality is at the center of the history of God's people at prayer. Thankfully, these psalms are making a comeback in our time. It's because pastors and counselors and other people involved in ministries of care and discipleship and spiritual direction are realizing that Christians need a language to get beyond the surface of those things that are troubling them and worrying them and perplexing them the most. There have been signs of this in the history of the church. The, the spirituals, choir sang a part of one for us this morning. The spirituals in the black experience in the United Church were in the United States were rooted in communities' desire to probe the depths of faith in the midst of trouble and crisis. And in particular, the spirituals tap into the story of God's rescue of Israel as articulated in the book of Exodus, and particularly they probe deeply into the life and the suffering of Jesus as ways to connect with God's presence and care and to find a way of promise. Many years ago, uh, one of the best-known Christian historians in the United States, Dr. Martin Marty, who taught for years at the University of Chicago, wrote a a kind of an unpredictable book for his scholarly work. He wrote a book on the Psalms called The Cry of Absence. And in that book, in just a really brilliant way that I've never seen articulated anywhere before, he talked about the difference between a summery spirituality and a wintry spirituality. And he articulated that, that a summery spirituality, a spirituality of sweetness, and 
superficiality is what most people want most of the time. Whether they're reading the Bible, whether they're going to work, whether they're raising children, working out their marriage, whatever they're trying to do, there constantly is this kind of curve towards wanting things to be straight, clean, and simple, he writes. But the reality is that we live our lives more in the winter than in the summer. And he articulates that the importance of the lament psalms for developing that kind of wintry spirituality. He argues for a deeper, more authentic spirituality of worship and prayer and Christian living shaped and informed by the wintry content of these psalms. I remember my great aunt Sigrid, my grandfather's sister who was a hero to us, not only because of the uniqueness of her name in our lives, but just because of her beautiful character. And I remember standing around her gravesite in Scarborough so many years ago, and her Anglican priest said to us about Sigrid that Sigrid came to worship not to avoid her life, but to confront it. Never, ever forgotten that. She was a beautiful summary personality as we knew her, but the trouble in her life, the questions in her life, her profound experience of abandonment that had shaped the bigger narrative of her life, her priest was able to say that she brought that and she gave that to God every time she entered the sanctuary to worship and to listen and to pray. She didn't come into the sanctuary to escape her life. She came into the sanctuary to confront her life. The question for God's people is not so much will these kinds of crises come. The real question is will our faith prove to be strong and durable in the face of these crises? I have to say that that is a preoccupation that I've had in my own life as a pastor. I'm standing up talking to you, preaching. I've been doing this for years, many of you know. And yet one of these niggling questions that I have is when that storm comes for me, whatever it might be, that unexpected storm, that storm that comes that I wasn't prepared for, wasn't thinking about, wasn't getting ready for, when that storm comes... So the faith that I have been encouraging my brothers and sisters in Christ over the years through preaching and friendship and pastoral care and ministry, will that faith hold? Will I found myself firmly planted in Christ and in his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection, come what may? Jesus, on the cross, of course, asked that question for himself, and he asked that question for all of us. My God, my God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? And whether Jesus and we have actually been abandoned, one of the things that we know is that the experience of the absence of God is a powerful, powerful reality in human life. And this is David. This is David, a man after God's own heart. 
This is David who had experienced God's love, who'd experienced God's blessing, who'd experienced God's empowering in very significant and poignant ways. This is David yet coming. How long? How long? The psalm moves into an expression of praise. It ends with, but I trust in your unfailing love. There's a reaffirmation of faith that comes in the psalm. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me, is what David says. But the psalm offers no evidence that the universe is not empty. The psalm offers no empirical evidence that we are not just crying our tears and taking our troubles into the vacuum and the absence. And yet that might just be the point. What the Psalms are is that they are soul-shaking expressions, soul-shaping expressions of faith in the middle of the journey. This language of faith knows something about how we have been loved. This language of faith that echoes in our ears knows and reminds us that we have been spoken to, that we have been met by, that we have been loved by, that we have been cared for, that we have experienced the presence of the living God. And the crisis of faith and the crisis of care and the crisis of prayer comes in the middle of that context when there's that tension between what we know and the evidence of our disappointing experiences. This is what the Apostle Paul does. There's not an empirical definition of God's salvation. Paul says in Romans 8, famously, for I am sure, another way of saying it, says, for I am convinced The life of faith, his experience with Jesus Christ, has him convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present or things nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where he lands. After being open to trouble, after being open to persecution, after pastoring people through difficult times of faith. He says, no, just like David, I trust in God's unfailing love. So where do you take your trouble and your tears? You take them to the bar, you take them to the counselor, you take them to the sanctuary. I'd want to say that all three of those places actually could be very redemptive places in a certain way. But if you're familiarizing yourself with Job, and if you're being guided by the spirit of faith and doubt knitted through the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you're open to being resourced in the soul by many, many psalms, mostly psalms of David, 
you'll know that there's a crisis of faith and a crisis of fair care that comes in the middle of those difficult, difficult times. The questions don't just last for a minute. Sometimes those troubles last for a really long time. It takes time to overcome grief. It takes time to overcome loss. It takes time to overcome disease. It takes time to come to the realization on the other side that maybe disease on this side of life is going to have its way. Let me conclude by spelling out a really simple kind of spirituality of care around the spirit of lament. First of all, scripture. Familiarize yourself with the resources that we have been given. Take time in scripture. The Old Testament seems like such an obscure world to so many of us, but the story of Job and his tragedies the arguments of Ecclesiastes, the life of David, the tragic, beautiful life of Jesus. Take time to go deep and to renew your familiarity with those stories. They are gifts to you because they are your story. The second is, don't be surprised with prayer as a struggle. Don't be afraid of prayer as a struggle. Don't let this apparent tension in prayer between doubt and faith trouble you. Instead, do what the psalmist does. This is one of the beautiful things. I I love the lack of a pat answer here. Pat answers are like a stiff drink in a bar. They only last for a short time. Pat answers don't actually get you through the long journey of life. Deep sustaining experiences with God and the memory and faith of the deep sustaining way of God in the world and in the lives of the saints, that's what gets you through the long journey of life. And so allow the tensions in your prayer to be real. Don't run from them. The Psalms are our model for prayer. And so let them speak your heart and your words. Go with that flow. Live with that tension. When you come to worship, bring your deepest and darkest questions to church. Psalm 73, the psalmist is going crazy. Crazy. He's just going insane with the the unfairness of life. Why are good things happening to wicked people? And he tries to figure it out. He tries at the university. He tries in, his, in the library. He tries in conversations. with. He tries in every way to try to figure this out on his own. And the psalm turns that he says, until I did not understand the fate of evil people until I entered the sanctuary of the Lord. And then I understood. To use a fancy phrase, there's a liturgical epistemology that takes place in the way, in the community, in the place of worship. There's a dawning of reality. There's a reaffirmation of faith. There is a strengthening and a renewal of who God is and what God has done 
and the, both the promises of God, the love of God, the presence of God, the power of God that takes place when we gather together to give our praise. It's not predictable. It's not easily explainable apart from the love of God and the work of the Spirit in our lives. And finally, after Scripture and after prayer and after worship, ministry. I had a mentor of mine many, many years ago, a pastor. He was an unusual guy. He was a quirky, quirky guy. You think I'm quirky. But some of the things that he taught me were just just uncommon and important for me. One of the things that he would say is he would say, Paul, you need to learn to touch the pain. The way you touch the pain is that you don't avoid it. You don't deny it. You don't become practiced in cheap answers that push it aside. You don't disrespect people in the middle of the pain, whether it's physical or psychological or spiritual or relationally. Learn as a pastor to be able to touch the pain. Only when you're able to touch the pain will you become a conduit for the healing of Jesus. And then he would go on and give a long theological talk about isn't this what God was doing in Jesus? That God was coming to touch the pain of humanity. That God was coming himself into the brokenness of creation, into the brokenness of community, into the brokenness of people, into the brokenness of Israel, into the brokenness of Peter, James, and John, into the brokenness of the saints, into your brokenness, my brokenness, in order to offer us healing. Sometimes that means putting your coat on with people and walking through the wintry season. Sometimes it means putting your hat on and putting your boots on and going for a long, long walk with people because if this psalm is any indication, those wintry seasons of people when they ask how long, how long, how long can sometimes take a long time. As a community like Knox Church called to love the city and serve the world, this is going to take a long time to love this city. The city is... A beautiful city, but it also has brokenness and sadness and lostness. And as Nick talked about earlier and prayed earlier, has hunger at the core. As strange and odd as that seems to be. Take time. Avoid cliches. Be patient in prayer. Be patient in the word. Be patient in friendship with people. Where do you take your trouble and your tears? I used to think that the answer of you take your trouble and your tears to Jesus was kind of a simplistic one. Now I'm coming to understand because of my ongoing deepening understanding of who Jesus is and what God was doing through Jesus is you take your trouble and your tears to Jesus. You might not get the cliche answer you're looking for. You won't get the promise of a pain-free, responsibility-free, 
trouble-free life. I guarantee you, you will not get that promise from Jesus. But what you will get is that reminder that God is with you, that God is for you, and that everything from God's heart is offered to you and to your friends and to your city and to our world for its healing, for its salvation, for its faith and its trust. How long, how long, how long? But I trust in your unfailing love and my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has been good to me. May we be able to sing to the Lord because of his goodness, even in the midst of our trouble and our tears. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.